the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, we're still on the Gold Coast looking at some wonderful people who enrich the history of the Royal Australian Air Force. And today we're chatting with Gary Innes, DFC, better known as Huck to all those that know him in the RAAF. Now, he spent 15 years growing up on Tambourine Mountain, riding a horse to school, the longest being something like nine miles. We'll use miles because that's what they were called then from Camp Cable to Logan Village at the age of eight. After becoming an apprentice in the Postmaster General's Department in 59, he lasted two years and then joined the Air Force. In 1961, Huck joined the RAAF 10 Squadron as a radio technician, air. In 1965, he applied for the pilot's course, graduating to fighters in 1966. He spent the next five years as a single man, bouncing between Williamtown and Butterworth, flying Sabres and then Mirages. He was posted to Vietnam in 1969 as a forward air controller. Yes, flying the 01 Bird Dog, then the OV-10. Huck was awarded the British DFC for his efforts. He was posted to RAF in England College at Air Warfare at Manby to undertake the six-month course in weapons employment. He joined Aircraft Research and Development Unit at Laverton as the weapons officer to assist in assessing two Mirage projects. Huck spent the next 10 years flying and on projects associated with fighters. He resigned in 1996 to join Pelair target towing out of HMAS Albatross at Nara. Gary Innes, welcome. Nice to have your company, sir. Thank you. I've got to ask, well, firstly, the first question is you joined what year and why? I joined in January 61 because... The PMG, the Postmaster General's Department, didn't offer a lot of interest as a telephone technician in training. So radio technician was something that you were interested in? No. <laughs> well. I, my, as an 18-year-old, I was not an adult, as you be aware, and consequently I had to get my parents' approval to join the military under 21 years of age. And my mother with best intentions, determined that going from a um, telephone technician to an engine mechanic, which is what I wanted to do, was a backward step socially, and she would only sign my recruitment papers if I agreed to go in as a radio technician. Ah. There's a mechanic and there's a technician, and the technicians are higher paid and highly regarded, you know, so that's how it ended up in the Air Force as a radio bloke. Well, your mother obviously uh, knew what she was thinking about when she made that decision. But I've got to ask, because a lot of people have names that live with them forever. People call you Huck. Mm. How did that come about? <laughs> well, back in the 50s and 60s on Tambourine Mountain, there was only about 700 people living there, and there wasn't a lot of social interaction or engagement for young kids. 
uh, I had a couple of friends on a push bike after I'd given up my horse for a Melbourne Star push bike. And uh, we used to ride up and down the mountain, down to Cedar Creek and go swimming, etc., etc. And eventually I came up with this idea uh, with the mates and said, what do you want to do this, this weekend? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, there's nothing to do on Tambourine Mountain. <laughs> so I said, well, right, uh, let's, let's form a secret society. We'll call ourselves a Terrible Tambourine Trio, Huck, Buck and Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and and for I can't understand why, but nobody wanted Chuck for obvious reasons, so we ended up with two hucks and a buck. <laughs> and then so I, how, yeah, I mean, if that, that's when you were a kid. How did it? How how is it now still part of? <laughs> yeah, that's because um, I took that name both into the PMG and then into the Air Force. And uh, mother used to ring up and ask for Gary Ennis, and everybody'd say who. Uh, I think he's called Huck. Oh, Huck, why didn't you say so? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, eventually after I got into air crew and became a fighter pilot known as Knuckleheads by all those people who didn't get selected for fighters, they became Huck the Knuck, and so it stuck. Well, and they all rhyme. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we won't go any further with rhyming words than in that. Uh, you joined in 1961, and you joined, obviously, as a radio, a squad radio technician, because that's what your mother wanted. Who was it that asked you, uh, why do you want to be a signaller? And you said, I don't. Yeah, that was uh, Wing Commander Cairns. He was CEO of the One Flying Training School at Point Cook, and um, he was the chair of the board in Brisbane that we came down to be interviewed after doing all the stay nine tests. Uh, and uh, when he asked me that question, why do you want to be a signaller, sir? And I said, well, I don't. I want to be a pilot but I don't have the education to be a pilot I've only got year 10 and you needed a minimum of year 11 and preferably year 12 um, I said well that's a problem because I can't do year 11 or 12 in Townsville they only go to year 10 yeah, so you want to be a pilot and you want to go to signal first that may not happen so best to see if we uh, if you've got the right stuff so they did all the stain on tests for pilot and I guess I did all right. I didn't hear what the outcome was, but the board decided to uh, reject my application for signaller and um, advocate that I get posted to Ambley so I could do night school at the Ipswich Tech. And so I was doing four subjects over four nights every week for six months while I was at the aircraft depot as a radio mechanic. And um, then the left hand, not knowing what the right hand was doing, were trying to make me into a radio technician after 18 months. And so they posted me back to Red School in Laverton. Uh, and I said, God, what do I do now? You know, I'm only halfway through the course. And with no uh, counselling from section commanders or anything back then, you know, I decided, mm, maybe I better get a trade first because I've heard there's a 50% scrub rate on pilot's course and I'll be 20-something. I better have a trade, otherwise I'll be out on the streets. Silly old me. So I went back and did the Radtex course and ended up failing. And that was a bit of a shock. Yeah, failing that test, did that hamper your progress? It probably did, but um, you never really know because they used to advertise every month or so for pilot training and signaler training and aviator training. And you're in routine orders and you had to respond and send off a signal saying you wanted to apply. Uh, but it, I was always being knocked back. Members required in the mustering, uh, critically manned, can't be spared. Uh, members medically unfit, overweight. Well, I wasn't back then. 
um, and other excuses, they're just barriers to put in the way to see, yeah. see how determined you are to get onto the course. So eventually, uh, 23, the upper age limit for aircrew training came and went, and I said, well, that's it. I'm going to be a rad tech for the rest of my life after passing the technician's ticket out in the field and um, kept applying for pilot's course until 23 came and went, and I said, well, I'm going to be radio. So I go for going to the Sandy Point in the Philippines with 10 Squadron in my first overseas trip. Uh, anyway, about two weeks out from the deployment, the section commander and his war officer called me into their little office that they shared and said, Ennis, you're posted. What? How can I be posted? I've only been here six months. Yeah, well, you're posted to Point Cook. I said, Point Cook? They've got little windshields, one radio and one radio compass. After working on a Neptune with all this avionics equipment, that's a that's a fail. <laughs> I'm being sacked. And they let me bounce off the room for about two minutes before they eventually said, you're going as cadet aircrew. Well, why didn't you say so? Yeah, bounced off the walls yet again. So that was interesting. <laughs> Did you ever find out how, if you've passed the age of 23, how that occurred? Uh, well, you're allowed to go to pilot's course if you're already commissioned, but not being commissioned, you had to be both single and um, available and under 23, but they ended up taking two of us on our course. The other guy was Ian Jacobson, who was a year older than me, he was a frame engine fitter, and I was a rad tech, and we were the two old men on the course, everybody else was 17, 18, maximum 20. Yeah, so you graduated to fighters in 1966, was it? Correct, August 66. Um, what were you flying at that stage? Uh, we went from uh, Windjills at Point Cook to Vampires over in Perth and um, after a couple of shaky starts at both ends, Point Cook and Pierce, I managed to improve fairly significantly under the hands of Pete Blocky, an RAF hunter pilot on exchange out here at Pierce and come the wings test, <coughs> he got me in his office and said, now where do you want to go after all this huck? And I said, oh, I think it's only natural I should go back to Maritime where I came because I know all about the equipment and how it works. I just have to put that knowledge into the air. What? No student of mine's going to be a fish head. You're <laughs> fighter material, man. <laughs> whilst, whilst that was a compliment, I thought, bloody hell, people die with flying fighters and they die alone in a Maritime aircraft. You've got about 12 crew, instant party wherever you have to divert to. If you divert in a Mirage or a Sabre, you're on your own, you know, or if you eject, same so thing. So initially, that wasn't good news for you? No, so I was a bit fearful of all that because uh, being a little underconfident from coming through the ranks and having such a torturous climb to get to graduation, I thought, bloody hell, fighters. Mm. Anyway, that's where I ended up going, uh, driving through the back of New South Wales on the not, uh, Thursday night or whatever it was, there was a... A news flash: A Sabre jet has just crashed into the junction in Newcastle. I said, "Good grief, Sabre jet! That's where we're going." Um, I wonder if it's anyone I know. Probably not. Anyway, about an hour later, they came up with the name. Pilot officer Bill Goddard has just been killed in the crash. I said, Bloody hell! He was the ducks of the course. I was about number seven or eight. <laughs> what what chance have I got? <laughs> Yeah, anyway. There's been a, there's been a lot of um, uh, almost 
subtle reluctance to get into these fighters before you actually do actually get into one. Yeah, I think that came from my upbringing with a stepfather who was a ex-Changi in Burma Rail. He used to give me a hard time. You'll never amount to anything, Gary Ennis, you lazy little bugger. <laughs> okay, well, he, he was obviously wrong. <laughs> um, and thank God you did fail the test. Uh, what, what's How did cholera come into your life? Ah, well, I remember on Rookie's course they gave us all these injections. I don't know that cholera was one of them back then, but smallpox and uh, other in needles. They used to have one needle hanging out of your arm and they used to screw the body of the needle in for 33 men marching past with their left shoulder bared and then they'd put you out in the bull ring. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know that I ever had cholera injections beforehand, but on the way from Butterworth to Vung Tau in a Hercules, where I was based at the time in Butterworth, um, we had to divert into uh, a little village on the east coast, the northeast, hmm. and uh, it was while we were on the ground trying to sort out one of the engine overheat lights that we learned that the town was under a cholera epidemic and um, <laughs> don't go near the locals or the water. Bloody hell, that was close. Anyway, we got away with that and uh, ended up landing at Bung Tau and then starting my tour back in April 69. Yeah. All right, now it's Vietnam that I want to quiz you on, if you don't mind. You were, from what I've been told thus far for the various people I've spoken to, in Vietnam, if you're in the Air Force, the forward air controller is one of the most risky things to do as a single pilot in a plane. How did you get in? Firstly, how did you get in as an FAC? What was the steps there? Uh, we did our training back at uh, Williamtown before I deployed to Butterworth with the Mirage Squadron and you had to do an air support unit course and a joint warfare course and be on a few army exercises in Shoalwater Bay. So I had all the prerequisites for going to Vietnam. Not that I volunteered, but being a member of the service for five years or more, I thought I was pretty likely that I would go and I wasn't disappointed. I was only in Malaysia for two months before they sent me off to Vietnam. and. Um, ended up going on bird dogs. There were three of us. They used to go in batches of three for six months at a time. And I never did work out why it was only six months for the forward air controllers. Everybody else did 12 months, including the Canberra pilots, caribous, choppers and ground crew. Um, so we were sent there for six months as riding, Condor and myself, riding being the senior man, got the OV-10 and uh, the two bog rats got the bird dog. And we ended up down in the bottom four core in the Delta. Condon at uh, uh, Dongtam, just near Mito, and me at um, Bintui, out near Kanto City. So we're right down with all the flat waters of the Mekong flow. And yeah. we, we tossed a coin. We had to go down to Dongtam first, and this was an army base. So, uh, it looked pretty ugly. Uh, tents and um, PSP runway and lots of mud and dust everywhere. So I think Bintui's got to be better than this. I haven't heard anything about it, but it's an Air Force base, so it's probably going to be better than an Army base. And I won the toss with a Hong Kong dollar that one of the captains of the USAF had come back with from Hong Kong. So I chose Bintui, sight unseen. At least I'd seen Dong Tam. And I was uh, the winner out of that toss, I think. Peter was in, uh, in right at the edge of where all the action was. I was about a half an hour's flying time away, but our area of operations was just as active as his... Uh, it was all part of the 9th Division, around the bottom end of uh, Vietnam. And they were the first to be withdrawn 
by Nixon when he got in, because it was such an unpopular war at home, and he argued that the uh, South had been, um, what would you say, rectified, or uh, the bad guys had been overcome, and so they could afford to take the, the Ninth Division out. That wasn't quite true. It was just as much action in the Delta as there was everywhere else, but uh, it was all political. And that left Peter Condon and I uh, without an aircraft to fly because all the bird dogs were sent out of the country into Laos and Cambodia. And we weren't allowed to go within 20k of the border in case we were shot down and taken captive and became an international incident. So if there's no bird dogs, or, or broncos as the Americans called them, I think, uh, what were you flying? Yeah, the bird dog was a little Cessna uh, single engine job, a Cessna 152 I think it was called, with a tail dragger. Um, the Bronco was uh, just being introduced into service as a twin engine turboprop and um, not having any bird dogs to fly in South Vietnam, they offered us an upgrade to the OV-10. So we went back to Phan Rang, did the aircraft conversion and then went to a different AO which was just north of uh, Saigon for number one, Big Red One Division, to work with them. You, you have a very important award it's the dfc now tell me if i'm wrong uh you had what 60 hours since your conversion that's about right yeah yep. um and after that 60 hours the issue of a platoon of uh 30 men in charlie company were ambushed can you just take us through all of that what happened Right, well, I was at the end of my phase two checkout with uh, Major Leventis in the back seat. There wasn't much room in the back seat, and not much good visibility because the seat was buried down back, but uh, we were doing our thing, visual reconnaissance and nothing much happening on the radios. You're listening to three, four radios, a UHF, a VHF, and two Fox mics. And the Fox mic was for the Army. One was on ArtyNet and one was on the infantry net. Uh, the VHF was for tasking to order fighters and the UHF was to talk to the fighters. So you had four radios to listen to and identify who was talking to you. And um, we were just contemplating turning for home plates then things were so quiet and it was getting towards dark and it was half an hour transit to get back to Bintui at 60 knots. So uh, just as we were about to depart, they heard the uh, Artinet light up with artillery fire mission grid cord, did, 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 and away they went. And then we went across to their frequency and found that the platoon of 30 men had been ambushed by an unknown but sizable force and um, they were asking for help from the forward air controller. Uh, we were about 10 miles away from the contact and therefore about 10 minutes to get there in our little 60-knot aeroplane. In the meantime, I'm um, ordering up fighters alert, off the alert pad and it came with a standard load of Mark 82 hydraulic bombs, napalm and 20 mic mic cannon and by the time we got overhead the site you could see the tracer and the volume of fire from the enemy versus the trickle coming back from the friendlies and now that you're on their frequency you could hear the anxiety in their voice and the radio operator in particular and nothing gets your attention more than listening to their armor light rat-a-tat-tatting in the background while he's trying to tell you what's happening and where the enemy are in relation to them so it was a fairly tight situation and in that situation the enemy usually lose, move close to the friendlies so that that reduces the safety distance or rather they come inside the safety distance of the ordnance that the fighters were carrying. It's like a bomb with troops in the open is about 150 metres 
Uh, napalm was about 75 metres, but you could bring it down to about 20 metres if they were really pushed. Mm. Um, and so I decided that I'd use napalm first because the whole place was just a sea of green in the delta and no signifying characteristics on the ground for the fighters to bring their vision. So we put napalm down and that meant that the other fighters I had stacked up on high uh, were able to see what was going on and listen to my brief to the fighters which were on UHF, upper uh, high frequency, ultra high frequency. And in the meantime, I'm working with the VHF to get more fighters and talking to the army about what I'm about to do and the attack direction and the break and all that stuff. So getting the napalm on the ground gave everybody a focal point as to where the action was and then they could observe. Um, and so we went to work with, I think, I think it was three sets of fighters. It take about 10 minutes to brief and then put their ordnance on the ground. Um, we weren't able to use the Mark 82s in close proximity, but we did put them further out, um, not knowing at the time that there were 250 bad guys estimated on that contact, and so that was a fairly large force against 30 men, uh, half of whom were both either killed or wounded in the initial volley. Um, so it went on for about half an hour or 40 minutes, and it was quite dark by then. And you could tell how effective your air power was, but the stream of tracer, and there's one tracer for every seven rounds, as I recall, um, would be exchanged and only a trickle coming back from the good guys. And then as you roll into mark, all this enemy fire would turn up to you. And then you could feel the bullets going past your aeroplane because they're supersonic. And uh, the shock waves would hit you and your ailerons and the window that used to be tucked up underneath the wing making yep. this drumming sound, you know, say, whoa, you cheeky little sods, You're trying to shoot me down. <laughs> anyway, didn't get hit, so that was good. And uh, after each pass, the volume of fire would diminish, so you get the uh, immediate feedback that you're having some effect on the ground. Anyway, the Major was in the back seat working the Fox mic with the guys on the ground and the artillery while I was controlling the fighters. Um, and he decided that that was pretty exceptional control given my limited experience at that time. Anyway, he used to talk about it. Occasionally, we were only in the Delta for two months when we got together for a few beers and um, I think it was Peter Condon who said, well, you keep telling us this story. You should, if you think so much about it, you should write him up for a gong. We were the awards and decks people, the Australians, because there was only two things in common between air forces. One was flight safety the other was awards and decks, and so that was a second duty that the Aussies usually got. Um, the condo and I never wrote a thing. I mean, everybody was just doing their job. It did what was required. Um, but yeah. he must have written something. I've never seen the, the report, so I'm still searching for that, trying to get a copy, but unlikely at this stage that I'll ever be able to find it. Don't, don't stop trying, hmm. Gareth. Stop trying. That was Major Leventus, was it? Yeah, Major John Leventus. Yeah, I don't, they had two majors working in the in the Bintui. One was the ALO, the Air Liaison Officer, Don Cairnsfield. He was on his um, second tour. Leventus was on his first, but also very experienced. And uh, he was the guy in the back. So it was just opportune that there was somebody there to observe. But so uh, in, in getting the British DFC, uh, what's involved in the ceremony? Do they just hand you a piece of paper, say <laughs> thank you very much, or what happens? Well... Uh, it came as a complete surprise, of course, in the paper in 1970, uh, where they uh, hand out honours, and in there was a, a 
things they can fly off. So Gary Innes of Mount Tambourine or Tambourine Mountain had been awarded the DFC. Well, really? Hmm. Anyway, I remember getting a phone call from the Newcastle Herald after a few hours at the bar that day. <laughs> and uh, he said, how would you describe your efforts up there? I said, I'm I just doing the job like everybody else. I'm sure there are plenty of other people that might have been written up had they had the observer in the back seat. But um, most of the missions that we did, we didn't have an observer. We just flew on our own. Um, anyway, uh, they asked for a quote. And I said, well, I decided a few years ago I'd rather bend aeroplanes instead of mend them. And um, ended up getting a pilot's course and ended up in Vietnam. Uh, yeah, and he would have written me up for a Silver Star American ward, and then that would have been converted when it came out of uh, into Australian headquarters in Saigon, made into a DFC. So that, just go back to the actual incident. <clears throat> Those troops on the ground from Charlie Company, they were American troops. All American, yeah, all American. Wasn't there some issue with uh, the US uh, couldn't actually? communicate with them because they didn't have the right frequency or the right equipment or some issue? Well, there's some problems at times with the Fox Mic radio. Um, as you might have seen in some of the Vietnam War films, just a backpack radio with a whippy aerial and depending on their position on the ground and uh, obstructions around them causes some interference, but mostly uh, the comms were good enough to get the idea that they're in a tight spot and that you you could uh, tell them that this is going to be close. I don't want you standing up taking photographs because it might be the last photograph you ever take. Yeah. <clears throat> you you mentioned listening to them on the radio and the the, the uh, tension or the anguish in their voices. Yeah. Just tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so well, um, nothing. It, there's only one set of fighters, I recall, or maybe two, the A1 Sky Raider and the A37 for, uh, that had a fox mic, they could listen to what was happening on the ground and that certainly um, got them <coughs> worked up knowing how tight the situation was. The other yeah. guys, the Phantoms, the F-100s and so on, didn't have that capability so they depended on the fact to convey to them the urgency and the closeness of the situation. But so they, you, had, you had to be the interpreter, as it were, to those Phantoms, etc. Absolutely, yeah. You remember what you said? Uh, no, I just recall the F, one of the F-5s, I remember telling me uh, they used to fly in threes, the Vietnamese. They had the A-1, the A-37 and the F-5 and they sort of went to America each time for the aircraft conversion so their English became better and um, in the A-1s only the leader spoke broken English and the wingman didn't understand anything except go through dry, don't drop anything and clear live means you can drop something and they invariably put their bombs in exactly the same hole as a leader that way they can't get into trouble but as they went up the ladder they became more fluent <clears throat> and um, on this F5 flight that they put into work there the uh, leader called up and said hey Tamali speak slowly please I am not American you know I said that's all right mate nor am I yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Dominable Australian humour. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, how many other missions would you, not exact number, would you have flown as an FAC? Uh, about 300, I think. 300? Yeah. And of that 300 missions, how many of those would have been hot? Uh, most of them, um, about every second day, you'd be in a contact of some kind or other. Um, and then when you got back at base, you had to endure either the mortar attacks at Bintui 
or the rocket attacks at uh, Lycay that always used to happen after midnight in the early hours of the morning. Um, they'd set up these things and then leave them uh, and they'd be remotely uh, launched. And so that would interrupt your sleep as well as get some collateral damage if they were lucky, you know, from the fall of shot, but they were not aimed. They were just random, a bit like what's happening in Israel and um, the Middle East right now. You know, the, the rockets that they launch into Israel are just unguided, looking to do unco uncoordinated damage. Yeah, yeah, uncoordinated damage, that's right. Yeah, it's, qu it's quite amazing. Um, the Australian record in Vietnam as FACs was much better in survival than the American, simply because the American, they were pushing them through too early, they weren't trained as well. So obviously it speaks highly of our training, of the RAAF training. Yeah, and, it, and the same can be said for the Army as well. I mean, I only uh, observed working with the Australian Task Force on a couple of occasions when uh, Wing Commander Peter Larrard used to be in the same unit that I was posted to in Lycay, and then he got sent across to Bintui as the uh, DALO, um, for the division um, and he occasionally came out and had a few beers with us at Lycay and I had the job of taking him back to Bintui and there was a fight in the Australian area of operations that he took over from the back and was able to control because he knew the frequencies and the such um, yep. but, but I noticed that the Americans used to go along defined trails in line astern some of them with their ghetto blasters blaring away on their shoulder um, on drugs of some kind, probably marijuana, maybe worse. Uh, whereas the Australians got off the beaten paths, which were always booby-trapped, working abreast of each other within visual contact so that in the kunai grass they could see each other um, and, and were much more professional, you know, in their operation as far as ambushes were concerned. They didn't give the opportunity to the enemy. In terms of our training and our actual action... To what extent does Australia punch way above its weight? Yeah, well, I'm not too sure how that would stand recently with our time in Afghanistan or Iraq with the F-18s, etc. But invariably, um, our experience has been that the Americans have got a lot of manpower and a lot of equipment, high-tech equipment, um, but don't use it to the biggest advantage uh, that they would be able to get out of if they used it more effectively. We, on the other hand, get limited... Um, resources and so we've got to make the best use out of it as we can um, mm -hmm. even down to how long we hold equipment for you know uh, all of our aeroplanes were <clears throat> doubled in their life expectancy by modifications the life of type extensions and so on um, and so it became an issue that we were fitted for but not with all this equipment that the americans had and we yep. had to come to grips with their their capabilities but also their accuracy uh, that was one of the challenges. They had to get so many combat missions up in Vietnam as a staff officer to get an air medal. Um, I think it was five or six or something like that, pretty low numbers. Uh, and they'd come along as number two as a pre-planned mission off the ramp. And that way they're going to a target of trees, or we used to call them um, monkey busters, because there's nothing there by the time the tasking gets through down to the unit the bad guys have gone and they end up busting trees. So it's pretty safe for the um, commander, flying number two, to mm. be exposed to that without being uh, shot down. If you yeah. ever saw that movie, yeah. Bat 2-1, Bat that was a story yeah. about the Colonel wing, wing Commander that got shot down and they had to get him out of there. It took a while, but it was an interesting time. Yeah. 
So post-Vietnam, Huck, what, uh, what was in store for you post-Vietnam? Mm. I went through the barrage right up to uh, EXO, number two I see of the, of the squadron with number three squadron, and then ended up in staff work, Kangaroo 83, the first exercise we had in the Pilbara and the Kimberleys, first and only exercise. Um, Indonesians took offence at that because we've never exercised in that part of the country before. We must see Indonesia as a threat. No, no, no. We have a responsibility to our taxpaying public to be able to operate in any part of the country. And we've never operated there before. Little did we know we'd never operate there again either. What, because of the Indonesian Hmm. objections? Yeah, right. How did irritable bowel disease enter into your life? What role did it play? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's supposed to be uh, a problem with your immune system, immune system not recognising that it's attacking its own body. (laughs) I'm not sure how that works. It's way above my pay scale. But um, it uh, it developed um, through anxiety, I guess, I've come to that understanding now, having spent 50 years with this problem post-Vietnam. I spent the last two weeks of my tour in hospital with unspecified gastro, and uh, they weren't able to put a name to it in Vietnam, even though we had Macquarie Street specialists up there with Army Lieutenant Colonel and Colonel uniforms on. They're all specialists there giving their time, but they weren't able to come up with a diagnosis. It wasn't until I got back to Brisbane that a gastroenterologist came up with, after all the same tests that I did in Bung Tau, classic Crohn's colitis. Good grief, what's that? <laughs> and it turns out to be ulcerations of the colon. And uh, I wore that label for about 20 years uh, until another gastroenterologist, and I did see many over the 50 years, who decided that if it's been confined to the colon, it can't be Crohn's, it's got to be ulcerative colitis. But the only way we'll be sure is to take a cross-section of your bowel and put it under a microscope. And I said, you're not having one. And to this day, at near 80 years of age, I'm still on the planet and um, it's in quiescence. It's still active, but it's very quiet compared to where it's been. So I think it's a byproduct of yeah. anxiety and um, yeah, stress. stress. You, you keep on keeping on. Um, you After that, Diagnosis is that when you were posted to aircraft research and development to assess the Mirage projects? That'd be right, yeah. Uh, that was in 73, uh, 73 74. And um, I was sent there as a weapons officer. And part of the reason for that, I, I believe, was that uh, people in personnel knew about my history of bowel problems. And the world's leading gastroenterologist of the day, Professor Leonard Jones, uh, worked out of St. Mark's Hospital in London. And so it was a way of getting me trained in weapons at Manby in Lincolnshire, the College of Air Warfare, and then being able to go and see this specialist about my particular gut problem. Anyway, it uh, <clears throat> turns out that uh, whilst he had me prepared for surgery, shaved like a French poodle from knees to the neck, <laughs> they decided not to proceed. The physicians won over the surgeons, and I've had that experience twice, once over there and once in Australia at North North Shore. And each time the physicians have won out over the surgeons, which I'm grateful for, because uh, at 28 and single, not having a colon wasn't a very good prospect. <laughs> no, no. Um, so when did you resign and why? I resigned at 54 years of age. I was um, 
facing compulsory age retirement at 55 for my rank. Um, <clears throat> and wing as a wing commander, yeah. Um, I was given to believe that I might have made group captain, but that didn't happen due to a variety of reasons. I don't know what those reasons were, but that's history now. Um, so I ended up um, in divisional air liaison officer in, in Ogre, the only light blue suitor amongst the sea of camouflage, uh, working with and then for um, the now Governor-General, <laughs> David Hurley. He really? Was, he was the SO1 Ops in there when I first arrived, then he became Chief of Staff and um, ran the show from there. But he's, he's done quite well, and deservedly so. He's a remarkable person. I've had the opportunity on five occasions now of interviewing him. Mm. In fact, uh, there's a bit of a record there. Uh, never has a Premier of a state and a Governor together been interviewed live and he agreed to do it with uh, Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales and it was the most remarkable interview it's mm. one of the best interviews I can ever ha recall having he's just fantastic, you know he's a beekeeper don't you he, he has his own beehive no I didn't know that <laughs> yeah well that's an aside we won't stick there so what did, what did what was life like post RAAF for you, what did you do uh, I went after the Dalo I left about six months before I had to, um, principally because of lack of support of uh, Air Force in their manpower to try and get the best training for the Army with joint operations. Um, they used to send people that were fully trained, but they, for whatever reason, <clears throat> on the last exercise, none of them had ever done a joint warfare course, and so they were learning on the job, and uh, that didn't put the Air Force in good light with um, Mr Hurley or his his boss, General uh, Keating, <clears throat> and I just got a bit frustrated with the Air Force attitude. And I was approaching age retirement and the opportunity came up to uh, for a job in target towing down in Nara. The, the Navy owned the contract, flying Learjets and Westwinds, as it turned out in this case, um, and I managed to get a job there. So flying stayed with you? It did. Up until, up until I was 60. Then, uh, interestingly, Peter Condon was uh, checking training down there, the same fellow I was in Vietnam with. And um, yeah, he figured that 60 was as high as you should go in this sort of aviation. <laughs> but I, I gave him the opportunity to, uh, give, um, <clears throat> to exercise that philosophy. Mm. I didn't pass the instrument rating renewal, which is necessary. What is your, because someone listening to you now can't see it, what is the emblem on your left T-shirt? Left T-shirt. Is that one? That one, yes. Yeah, that's, this is the reunion that we had in Canberra in, in uh, 2008, and um, it's the first one that I ever went to. Uh, they've been having reunions in America every two years, and um, Peter Condon had been to most of them, as I recall. I, uh, for whatever reason, wasn't able to get away. And so uh, I went to the one in Canberra, to which they invited any Americans that were forward air controllers and maybe had something to do with the Australian Task Force or Australian forward air controllers. It was yep. a huge, huge success down there in Canberra, and we were there. For, they were there for ANZAC Day. Uh, prime Minister Rudd was the Prime Minister at the time, and the Americans were impressed about the turnout of the public in Canberra and the, the scenery and the um, occasion. You know the way it was honoured in Australia. Well, honoured is the right word, my friend, uh, DFC recipient as well. Uh, it it honour to talk to you and 
know that you've served well and been an integral part of the history, the rich history of the Royal Australian Air Force. Sir, thank you very much for your time. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.